Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. This is that week in the month when we get to listen to a sermon, and today's sermon is a very special sermon. It's a unique sermon by Jonathan Bean. Jonathan and Carla Bean are graduates of Beeson Divinity School. They came to our school some years ago. We got to know them. We fell in love with both of them, and they were such wonderful uh, students and exemplars of the gospel in so many ways. I remember, Dr. Smith, one time I uh, had to lead a conference in Spain, in Sevilla, Spain, and I asked Jonathan and Carla to go with me, and they translated, they were organized, they were just wonderful helpers to me in so many ways, and they served the cause of Christ in the, in the field of global mission all over the world and done such fantastic things. In 2011, Jonathan was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and he now is in hospice care. And a few weeks ago, you and I had the privilege to visit with them and be at his bedside, pray with them, read the scriptures with them. Tell us about that visit. It was a visit in which I recognized that Jonathan's testimony of having faith in God during times of tranquility would sustain him during these times of turbulence. Mm. I was moved by what he said. In fact, this message in itself is a soliloquy. It's opportunity to overhear him and to hear him talk to himself. Throughout the message, you'll hear him crying. You'll hear him pleading. you hear him saying, I'm a dying man preaching to dying men, to quote Richard Baxter. I thought, Dean George, about the song in Christ alone as I saw him and as I reflected upon our visit, I thought about this. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus demands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. In this message, he marries evangelism with discipleship. Uh, It's a message about the authority of Scripture. And instead of going from verse to verse, he takes and incorporates these verses within the framework of scenes. Scene one, God's patience in pursuing his will, gives us the verse. Scene two, man's rebellion and rejection of God gives us the verse. Scene three, God's perfect plan accomplished. Scene four, the urgency of repentance. And finally, scene five, our role in God's redemption. It's Father's Day. He honors his father and tells us, in fact, in in essence, that the three things his father taught him was to invest himself in things that are eternal, in his word, in other people, um, and in those things that can never pass away. This is a moving message. My heart and head were both informed and inspired. You know, Jonathan has been on the staff of the church at Brook Hill since 2009. That's where this sermon was preached on Father's Day this past summer. Let's go to that great church and listen to our dear friend, Jonathan Bean, as he proclaims God's word.
Well, why don't you go ahead and pull out your Bible to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be in the first 12 verses of Mark this morning, picking up on where we've been in this series, Meet Jesus, following on where we were last week in chapter 11. And I want to just take a moment of pastoral privilege here, and I want to thank you as a church. You guys have cared so very well for me and my family, especially over the last six months where we've been kind of pulled into crisis mode with chemotherapy and radiation and all of those things combined. Y'all have come around us as a church. You have loved us well, prayed for us, walked with us. And by your love for one another, you're an example of Christ to the world. Because people are watching. And they have seen you care. And I know that's not just true in our lives. I've seen that played out in many other people's lives as they walk through difficult, hard circumstances. And you have been a people that have come around and demonstrated true biblical community and biblical care. Thank you. Thank you. Let's continue to be that people that God is crafting us to be. Thank you for what God is doing in your lives. Also, having served now over eight years as a pastor here, I want to affirm something else I see in you. And I think all the other pastors would agree. You are a people that want to know and obey the word of God. What an incredible thing. Not just to people that want information about the word. Not just to people that want to check some boxes of religious activity. No, you want to know the word and you want to obey the word. It's such a privilege to be a part of pastoring a people that want to know the word. Where we sit week in and week out under the word. No matter who is preaching, we are here to hear from the word of God and we are here to receive from God. So we know who we are and who he is. So let's read the text this morning again. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Let me read it. And he, being Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they killed him. And so with many others and some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, 
This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is a passage all about authority. All about authority. We know that as we gather each week, we gather to sit under the authority of God's word. And in God's word, we find out who God is and we find out who we are. And that God's word is what shapes what we believe about himself and what we believe about ourselves, not the other way around. We don't start with our thoughts and our opinions about God and about ourselves. We start with God's word as our authority that teaches us who we are and who he is. So each week we gather and that's why our worship is full of the word, because we, we need to rem- be reminded in scripture who God says who we, he is and who God says we are. You know, it's Father's Day. Actually, my father is doing well, but he had a heart attack this past week. He's recovered well. But I've been thinking back on things my father has taught me. And one of the things he used to say, he said, son, invest your life in three things that are eternal. God, his word, and other people. Invest your lives in these three things. So today, we look into God's word to see who he is. And in so doing, We are about things that have echoes into eternity and eternal consequences in our lives and through our lives to other people as well. So today, let's learn about God's authority. Our culture also presses in and tells us all these ideas and things about God, starting in a completely different place from God's authoritative word, starting in ideas and thoughts and opinions. I think in our culture, there's a common view that God is nice. He's some kind of a grandfather in the sky that's just handing out Werther's originals, you know? Or he's Santa Claus that we go to when we want to get a gift, right? And we dumb down a picture of who God is. Another myth in our culture about God is that God is whoever we want him to be. And so whatever we think, whatever we subjectively think about God is who God is. And effectively what we're doing is just creating a God in our own image. Not the true God. And it's wonder why our culture gets all mixed up. A third 
idea in our culture about God is that God is popular and that everybody will like him. I think we'll be surprised to find in this text as God reveals who he is and his authority that that's absolutely not the case. People don't like it. And he's not popular. Why is this? Ultimately, because we want to be in authority. We want to be in control. We all have issues with authority, don't we? Just look back across your life. Not just when you were a child, you still have issues of authority. We would much prefer prefer just to have some controllables, some outward religious actions that we could take, some boxes to check, especially in this cultural Christian context in Birmingham, Alabama. I did this, therefore I'm good. I went to church, I'm good. Why? Because that keeps us in control of our lives and it keeps us in control of God versus having to thrust all of our hope, all of our expectations on Christ and trust and submit to his ultimate authority and rule in our lives. So this issue of authority is not foreign to us. This issue of authority is not outside us. This issue of authority is right inside of us. So we have to grapple with this text and this issue of authority and authority revealed this morning. All right. Let's put this passage in its context. Context is so important when we study a passage of scripture. Because this comes right in the middle of the showdown in the temple. Between the Jerusalem authorities and leaders and Jesus and his authority. Remember last week in the study in chapter 11, we have the triumphal entry of Jesus. People singing Hosanna coming in. Matt talked about the fig tree sandwich last week. Talked about how Jesus curses the fig tree, goes up, cleanses the temple, goes back out and explains what's going on with the fig tree. So this is in the middle of this big showdown between the religious leaders and Jesus. And now in this passage, we're back up on the Temple Mount. Back up, probably in Solomon's portico, for sure surrounded by a big crowd of people and the Jewish religious authorities and Jesus' leaders probably standing in Solomon's portico underneath the 40-foot columns, looking out across the Kidron Valley that dips out underneath uh, with the, the, um, the Mount of Olives off in the distance. The temple sitting behind. Quite a setting for Jesus to tell a story about his authority. So let's set this up. 11... Chapter 11, verse 28, we see, And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. And the chief priests and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, I want to stop right there. Is this an authentic question? 
genuine, honest question. By no means. They're not really asking him about his authority. They're in effect saying, we are the authority. We're the Jewish leaders. How is it that you're preaching and teaching and cleansing the temple and saying these outlandish things? Who do you think you are, Jesus? So it's all about authority. And I love the way Jesus does this. It's beautiful to see what he does here. He doesn't turn around and argue with them. He tells them a story. Story is so powerful. Everywhere I've traveled around the world, people use story to communicate truth. It reaches down deep into our hearts. You know, this is a parable of judgment. It's important to set that context. But it's intended to be a parable of judgment that penetrates to our hearts. Much like when the prophet Nathan went to David after David sinned with Bathsheba, he told him a story about a rich man that stole a poor man's sheep for a banquet when somebody came. And at the end, Nathan said, David, that man is you. And David repents. Jesus is doing something very similar here. Yet the religious leaders do not repent. They do not turn to him at the end of this. They turn away from him. Jesus builds his story on very common Old Testament imagery. And everybody understands exactly what's going on here. They ask him, who do you think you are? And he reveals by telling a story that summarized the whole redemptive story, all of Old Testament history in a few short verses. He sums it all up such to where in verse 12, they say they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Everybody standing there is very clear about this parable. Sometimes Jesus tells parables that are veiled. That people don't understand. That afterwards he has to go and explain to his disciples that they don't even understand. This is not one of those parables. Jesus tells this parable and everybody present kind of goes, whoa. They all know exactly what he's saying. So let's make sure we unpack it and we come away with that clear understanding as well. Jesus is using strong Old Testament imagery out of Isaiah chapter 5 that talks about a man in his vineyard. And it's clear in Isaiah 5 that the man is God and the vineyard is the people of Israel. Jesus builds on this very same thing. The owner in this story is God. The vineyard is Israel. The tenants are the leaders of Israel. The servants are the Old Testament prophets. And the son is Jesus Christ. 
We need to start by thinking how this story applies and applies to us. We need to ask, who do you identify with in this story? Who do you identify with? You know, the first hearers, these Jerusalem leaders, probably when they first began to hear this story, at the beginning, they probably identified with the owner. These are the wealthy landlords of Israel who had had to work things out with unrighteous tenants. And so they're automatically inclined to be there. But Jesus tells the story so masterfully and turns it around to where they see who they are. Throughout church history, as different commentators have talked about this passage, often the church has only seen application of this passage in Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Son. And only thought, oh, that was just something applied back there. But to accurately apply this parable to our lives today and feel the weight of this parable of judgment, we have to remember that we, you and I today, are the unrighteous tenants. We are the Jerusalem leaders. We need to feel the weight of judgment in this passage. This story breaks down into what we're going to look at five scenes in the story. The first scene in verses one and two, we see God's patient pursuit of his people. God's patient pursuit of his people. Look how God cares for his people. He planted the vineyard. He protects the vineyard. He provides for the vineyard. And he expects to enjoy the fruit of the vineyard. God cares for his people. In verse 1, it says, And he began to speak to them in parables. And when he had planted a vineyard, he put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went away to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. I don't know about you, but there's not many vineyards around here. Are you guys familiar with vineyards? Can you know the way this works? I know, I know I wasn't. In fact, this is a passage I have rarely heard. I couldn't remember ever her having heard this passage preached. Now I'm a preacher's kid and grew up in church, and I still haven't heard this passage preached. But this is a powerful passage that we need to grapple with. And so I've been trying to wrestle through how, what wouldn't be a modern retelling of this? And this is the best I've been able to come up with. Still falls short. Jesus is the master storyteller. Um, but trying to think through what this would look like. And possibly in our context, this could look something like a family business. So, leader of the family gets an idea for a business, develops the idea, invests the capital, sets it up legally, strives hard to get the business up and running. And once it begins 
to have some revenue, possibly even some profit, finds people to work the business, to manage the vision, the business. And after some time, goes and sends someone to collect some of the fruit, some of the profit of the business. But that messenger is rejected. So he sends another and they're rejected. Sends another and they're rejected. So finally he says, I'm going to send my child. They'll respect my child. And the child is going and the managers of the business look and see the child and say, the heir is coming. Let's kill him and take the business for ourselves. This is a story meant to shock. The story I just told you is more like a mob movie than a story we'd find in the Bible, right? No, that wouldn't happen. That's not the way things work. It is meant to grab our attention and see how unrighteous these tenants are. In ancient Israel, between a fourth and half of the fruit of the vineyard was supposed to go back to the owner. But these tenants are not only content living off of the vineyard, they want to seize the vineyard for themselves. They want to be the owner of the vineyard. And this is a perfect picture of Israel's relationship to God. But we see God's patient pursuit of his people. In Second Peter 3, nine, it teaches that God is patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all may reach repentance. Aren't you thankful for God's patience and his pursuit in your life? Think back across your life. I know I can look back and see God patiently pursuing me time and again in ways that I didn't deserve. Him sending people and circumstances into my life to call me back to Him. And I know that you share similar stories as well. God is patient with us and He pursues us. Do not forget God's past faithfulness in your life in the midst of your present circumstances. You may be going through all kinds of hardship, but remember God's faithfulness to you in the past is a sign of his future and present faithfulness to you now. Psalm 100 verse 5 has been so key on the journey that we've been walking on over the last few few years. For God is good. Never forget that, brother and sister. God is good. God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Do not forget God's patient pursuit of you and his loving kindness. Yet this moves into scene two. Where we see man's relentless rejection of God. Man's relentless rejection of God. And they took him and they beat him. And they sent Away, him away empty handed. And again, he sent them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent them another. And they killed him. And so with many others. Some they beat and some they killed. The tenants only care about their 
own benefit. They are not content with benefiting, though. They want to be owners themselves. And this reminds us of the very first garden. Not just a vineyard, but the very first, the Garden of Eden. And this has been the story of God's people throughout all of time. We have wanted to throw out the owner of the vineyard and own the vineyard ourselves. God set us up in the Garden of Eden Eden perfectly, yet we were not content to follow his rule. Man has never wanted to submit to God's authority, but has always wanted to be the owner himself. Many servants he sent, constant rejection. This is the story of God's people. This is a summary of the story of the Old Testament. This is the cycle of the whole Old Testament story. Our kids study this and learn this in children's ministry and student ministry. The people of God fall into disobedience. God disciplines them. They call out on him and repent. He delivers them and repeat. Disobedience, discipline, repentance, deliverance. And repeat again and again and again. Remember, God sends his servants, Elijah, Isaiah, and so many others. Jesus is summarizing for everyone present and for us here the history of God's relationship with God's people. We are tenants. They are tenants intended to care for the garden until the owner, until the king returns. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. And I thought about the Lord of the Rings. Anybody here fan of Lord of the Rings? Read it, watched the movie. There's a scene in the Lord of the Rings about the steward of Gondor. You may recall this scene. So the steward of Gondor is supposed to care for the city until the return of the king. But instead of caring for it, he has taken over the city and is ruling it as his own. And you see him there sitting at the table, enjoying the fruit of the city, eating this meal as the meal drips down his face. And Gandalf the wizard comes to him and tells him that the king is returning. And instead of looking up in excitement and anticipation, he looks down and you can see his mind rolling on. How can he prevent the return of the king? And this is an example of what is going on here, rejecting the return of the king. Jesus is telling a parable that's meant to reach into our hearts and grip us and see our rejection of him. But by God's grace, this parable doesn't end with man's rejection of God. There's a further scene. God's perfect plan accomplished. Scene three. And still he had another, a beloved son, he sent to them. They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Have you not read this scripture? 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Think about this. Right there, standing before them. Jesus is prophesying to them what they are about to go and do. Think about the grace and mercy of that. Again, a further opportunity to turn. He is prophesying his rejection, and he is also proclaiming in his quotation of Psalm 118 who he is, that he is the Messiah. The quote out of Psalm 118 about him becoming the chief cornerstone is linked to all the messianic titles that Jesus is given in the triumphal entry. And it's unmistakable that he is telling them in this parable his identity. And he is answering their question that they originally asked about authority. And he is affirming to them, I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. Meet Jesus, God in the flesh. I am the keystone that holds the eternal temple of God together. It is constructed and held together in Christ. So we see him proclaiming who he is. He's predict, he is also prophesying his rejection, but his ultimate exaltation and telling them who he is. And he's doing all of this standing right in front of the temple, the old stone physical temple. Knowing that God has accomplished his perfect plan of salvation and he has accomplished that plan despite rejection, humiliation, and suffering is incredibly encouraging to all of us when we realize that he is accomplishing his perfect plan in each one of our lives, no matter what we're currently walking through. Think about that. You may feel like you are the last straw in your marriage. You may know not where to turn in the relationship with your child or your parents. You may not know where your next paycheck is coming from. Your world may be spiraling out of control because of health issues. All kinds of things may be spinning out of control in your life and you're desperately looking for what to grab onto. And I want to tell you, look to your salvation. Look to God. The same one that accomplished your salvation has not left you and will not ever leave you. He is with you. He will not abandon you. God specializes, specializes in bringing life out of ashes. This is what he does with his son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish our salvation. And he does this again and again, brothers and sisters, in the middle of our circumstances. Trust him. He is faithful. 
He will give you the strength to step forward in faith. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy by no means. But God is strong. He is your rock. The parable of the vineyard, the parable of the tenants, is filled with a profound sense of God's sovereign control over all things. All things in the universe, all things in our lives as well. The big magnet, mag, magnify, mag, mag, big <laughs> things, right down to the very specific items on your agenda Monday morning. God is sovereign in control. He cares and he is active in our lives. Never forget it. This is what the word of God shows us and teaches us about who he is and who we are. In the story of Nathan and David, remember David repented. These leaders, as we already talked about, did not repent. They hardened their heart. And I want to call us not to do the same. Do not turn away and harden your heart as they did. This is often when we're confronted with the authority of God. This is often what we want to do. We don't want to submit to a God that requires all authority from our lives. And we want to turn away. We want to remain in control of our lives. And often we want to kill God out of our lives. Don't do it. Don't do it. And this moves us into the next scene. The urgency of repentance. The urgency of repentance. 9 through 12. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Wow. Sobering, sobering reminder. Destroy the tenants. Give the vineyard to others. I think it's interesting here. We got Peter standing here along with the disciples. And a few months later, Peter is arrested by this same group of religious leaders for healing someone. And he's brought in front of them and he's asked a very similar question. By whose authority did you do this? And in chapter four, beginning in verse 12, I think Peter remembering what Jesus said to them quotes Psalm 18 and very similar to what Jesus says. He says it like this, beginning verse 10 through 13. Peter, to these very similar leaders, he says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, by the name, under the authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. Hear this. 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. Isn't that like God? He gives those that eventually crucified further opportunity to hear from Peter months later again and gives them an opportunity to repent and believe. The Bible is full of God, evidence of God's patient pursuit of his people. But the Bible is also full of God's ultimate justice. God is not an eternally absentee landlord. He will return. Do not walk away as the religious leaders did and attempt to kill God out of your life. As Peter said, there is salvation in no other name. Second Corinthians 5.11, Paul said, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. One scholar put it this way, Remember once more that if you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, and have refu- you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ is rejected, hope is rejected. I should like every person here that is unconverted to remember that there is no other gospel and there is no more sacrifice for sin. We live in a cutthroat world. And we look around and we think often there is no justice, no accountability. Everybody's getting away with it. Not true. The day of judgment will come for all mankind. And we will be judged based on how we respond to Jesus Christ. God's judgment will inevitably come. Charles Spurgeon said, If you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring us resurrection. Jesus is love manifest. In this parable and throughout all of the counsel of scripture, we see God's, both God's patience and God's final judgment present. And we live in a world that often we don't think about the urgency of repentance or the shortness of our lives. We drive past cemeteries and don't even think about it. I think maybe one of the few places that actually a moment of the internal nature of our the shortness and brevity of our lives breaks in, maybe on Facebook. You guys might think this is a little funny, but just about every day somebody posts a picture and they're like, look at little Billy. This is when he was six. Man, I can't believe how quick time flies. That's a moment, a window in that eternity breaks into our everyday lives and reminds us life is short 
Life is short. It is fleeting. It is here today, gone tomorrow. As a dying man, preaching to dying men and women, boys and girls. Don't miss the opportunity to turn in repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christ follower, if you are not a Christ follower, Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you could not live so that he could die the perfect death to make amends for your sin and bring you back into right relationship with the Holy Father. And he is calling you to turn and put your faith in him. To cast everything in your life upon hope in him and what he has done. And to realize and submit to his rule and reign in your life. And in so doing, he will restore you to right relationship with the Father. And you will live in the way that you were designed to. A return to the garden, so to speak, where God reigns and rules and we serve him as his people. If you are or claim to be a Christ follower, but know that you are not living in submission to his authority, you are in a very dangerous place, my friend. Turn away from self-rule. Run back to Christ. Think about his patience and kindness and love for you. And come back to Christ now. Submit to his authority and reign and rule. He is good. And his plans are perfect for your life. Do not turn away from him today. Turn and repent. If God is doing this work in your life right now, There are countless people here that love to talk to you more about that. So many people. Reach out. Talk to somebody. Come up, talk to me or one of the other pastors afterwards. Go to this area, the access corner. Don't walk out of here. Rejecting Christ. God's grace. If you are here and hearing this right now, it is God's patient pursuit of you. Turn and trust in him and talk to somebody. We'd love to walk with you and what that looks like. If you have honest questions, genuine questions, please. That's great. We'd love to talk to you about those as well. To turn and trust. And this moves us into the final scene. The final scene. Scene five. Our role in God's redemptive story. Our role in God's redemptive story. I've been trying to think about what a picture of a good steward looks like. And I was reflecting back when we lived in Central Asia. So we worked as missionaries out in Central Asia. And um, when we lived there, uh, we needed a place to live. And so we found a little house to live in. We bought it, all of $20,000. 
carried a basket full of money into the bank to buy it and walked out with the deed to this house. And a couple of months later, we had to unexpectedly leave the country. So we had this house. We entrusted it to the care of a a caregiver. And we left, not knowing when we'd be back. And about seven months later, I had the opportunity to unexpectedly return. Nobody knew I was coming. Just showed up in the city after getting off an overnight train. What do you think the first thing I did? I went to check on my house. I went and there it's always a gate around the house. So I went and knocked on the gate. I didn't know if anybody would even be there. And immediately the caretaker poked out his head, came and opened up the gate. As I walked in, I realized all the flowers were manicured. The lawn was cut. He had swept out the driveway. The leaves were raked. The house looked immaculate. We embraced. He said, I'll be back in just a minute. And he ran inside of the house, quickly prepared tea, as was the custom. Got tea, ran back out, set up two folding chairs under the grapevine in the yard. And I sat down with him and prepared. And we sat down and I had tea with the caretaker. Began to talk and ask him. And I realized through talking to him that he had done this every single day, faithfully awaiting. Mark. The picture of a good and faithful steward awaiting the return of the king. In 9 verse B, I think we have to see where we are located as God's people. See, this isn't just a story about the Old Testament Jesus is telling. This is a story about all of redemptive history. So we have to locate ourselves in the stories as well. And we have to realize that we are stewards of the gospel to others. We have to see our role in the redemptive story. So who are these others? Well, first of all, we are the others. Because this was about the gospel going from Israel to the Gentiles, and we are the Gentiles. But the mission impulse of this passage flows on beyond us to the others who have yet to hear about God's authority. So we are also caretakers of the gospel, meant to steward the gospel on to others who have yet to hear of God's authority, Jesus' supreme authority. Over all things. So the gospel doesn't stop with us. But flows on through us. Every week at the end of our gathering. We repeat the great commission. How does that begin? All what? Wow. Think about that. 
the very authority of Jesus given to us as he sends us out to continue to carry out his plan and his purposes in the world. We go with that very authority. We go out. Each week we are scattered and we are sent out as stewards of the gospel, to share the gospel, to make disciples in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our parks and places of play, in our workplaces, down in the urban parts of our city, wherever God takes us, in our neighborhoods, across the country, quite literally, as people go all over the country on business this very week from our country. And quite literally, across the world as we send people out to the ends of the earth. This is why we send people out to the hard places as well, not just to what's near us, but also to the ends of the earth. You know, this past week, we had a short-term team in the Middle East sharing the gospel with Muslims. There's a young married Muslim man that heard the gospel and didn't immediately believe, but it was connected with our partners. And when he talked with our partner and heard the gospel again, he did believe and came to faith and called his wife and shared the gospel with his wife. And she believed as well. And now this couple is working with our partners there and beginning a discipleship process all the way on the other side of the earth. This is what the authority of God and Christ can do in and through us, his people. No one is too far from the saving hand of God. So I want to challenge us this week. We're in the series Meet Jesus. And we come each week and we look into the book of Mark and we meet Jesus, we encounter Jesus. But you will go past people all week long that don't know Jesus. You will have opportunities this week if you are looking for them to introduce people to Jesus. You are a steward of the gospel. Open up your eyes and your antenna. Ask God to show you where and how you need to introduce people to Jesus this week. And step forward in faith. Not in your abilities, but in faith, in the authority and the power of the gospel to transform lives. Give others the same opportunity that you have had to meet Jesus this week. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.